Welcome to the next in a series of Ask a Chair podcasts brought to you by SAEM Rams. Hi again, everyone. We are here with Dr. Thomas Turndrup. He is a professor of emergency medicine at The Ohio State University. He's previously served as chair at both Ohio State as well as Penn State and the University of Alabama. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us this morning, Dr. Turndrup. It is a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Excellent. So let's jump right into some of the questions that we have prepared for you. Your biography discusses research interest in disaster medicine and emergency services. Your resume in this area is pretty extensive, including an NIH grant to create a coalition to enhance surge capacity in central Pennsylvania, something that you talked about at the meeting yesterday when you were back at Penn State. How did you work your way up to these large-scale projects, and what advice do you have for early career physicians who aspire to work on this scale? Some people thought I was dangerous for a while because disasters followed me around. (laughs) Not really, but, you know, the engagement in that is, I believe, seeing the effects of, you know, mass casualty incidents and trying to be better prepared and Mm -hmm. perceiving that we were not adequately prepared in part because of communication difficulties, challenges, expectation setting, Mm -hmm. things like that. So it was motivating, whether it would be a tornado or terrorist attacks in New York Mm -hmm. City. For one example, I happened to be at the Marriott Brooklyn at a research meeting, clinical Mm -hmm. research meeting, when the World Trade Center attacks happened on September 11, 2001. And so those very challenging and difficult events uh, set a tone for me in my career and some Mm -hmm. of my aspirations trying to make for better response plans and um, trying to contribute to the safety of our setting. Excellent. What do you think is the biggest barrier to developing a research project? And what do you think is the biggest challenge to sustaining them? I say write it down. Mm. So (laughs) a lot of research ideas are terrific, Uh but they never even get written down. Mm -hmm. And, you know, residents are very busy. A lot of the wonderful and cutting-edge ideas come from uh, people in a position who are seeing things that could be better mm-hmm. in our everyday work lives or supporting the scientific basis for improvement of emergency care. We can have the greatest knowledge and skills, but if it takes us six hours in the waiting room before we can deliver it, mm-hmm. it's probably not very good care. So even though that's more operational and maybe not sort of an overall research question, it is a fact of our lives professionally as emergency physicians that Patients are often frequently significantly delayed when they show up. So better mm-hmm. mechanisms for addressing not just the time issue, but then once people arrive to sort out their diagnosis and to treat them. Mm-hmm. For research ideas, in my opinion, we don't have sufficient involvement of emergency medicine trainees. We don't have time or pathways for them. If you look at how other disciplines are involved in training individuals, you know, if you go to an infectious disease fellowship, you were in training for a long time. <laughs> and not that we have to reproduce that, mm-hmm. but hopefully we can describe the importance and the excitement associated with innovation and new discovery mm-hmm. to our residents and trainees or fellows or junior faculty in a way so that people are thrilled to participate, not, oh boy, you know, I got another research meeting to go to. It's that they can contribute to enhanced scientific underpinnings for emergency care delivery. Mm-hmm. That's how I think of my mission statement. If I'm mm-hmm. not really a big mission statement person, but mm-hmm. that's how I think of my mission is to improve the scientific underpinnings for emergency care delivery 
and improve the quality of that delivery. So the things that I try to do in my life, to some extent, are organized under trying to impact on that overall mission statement. What other advice do you have for a resident who's trying to start a research career? You talked about how you don't feel that we have enough involvement of our trainees. And sometimes I think that residents look at the research landscape and it can be a little overwhelming. What would you say for those that are trying to get involved? Find somebody you trust. Typically a senior member of your residency program or fellow or faculty member Mm -hmm. who shares a common interest in a question that you have. Mm -hmm. Many of these questions come from the bedside. Mm. You know, what would be best to do in following circumstance? I got hemorrhagic shock and we're giving whole blood. How much should we get? When do we institute a mass transfusion protocol? And mm-hmm. If that's a stirring question for an individual and you find somebody with a shared interest, often that's enough to say, you know, we should meet, talk about that a little mm-hmm. bit, maybe write down. And often that's really where the failure happens is, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, it's a good idea, but let's have a beer instead. And that's okay. It's just take the next step, which means to write it down and then organize your thoughts. And oftentimes you'll find that that is a legitimate question mm-hmm. to be answered, but you have to go the additional steps of writing it down and then developing a study question, mm-hmm. which generates the hypotheses and things to be done. And don't give up. Pursuing important research questions takes time, and uh, you will see failure. You know, one out of every hundred. Sorry, it's about 9% of, I guess, overall, depends on how you describe it, mm-hmm. of grants that are submitted. But good organized grants that are not triaged have about a 20% chance or so of getting funded mm-hmm. at a federal level. Now, it's not a horrible failure rate, but expect some failure. Mm-hmm. And maybe call it an opportunity to improve your, mm-hmm. your next submission uh, when you get the refinements that come up in summary sheets from the scientific review body. Mm-hmm. We really have not made in our discipline a much progress at all in terms of our funding. Mm-hmm. I think if you look at departments of medicine who are by far in the lead in terms of NIH funding, I think emergency medicine is about one and a half percent of that. We've done very well on I think mm-hmm. uh, many aspects, especially educational aspects of our discipline, but we really have not been able to measure up, get our stuff together mm-hmm. to really create a track for individuals who want to pursue questions of importance to them in their careers and their lives. But we have to get, I think, people into the funding series. It's the only way to show that your question matters Mm -hmm. is to get somebody to give you money to do it. Mm -hmm. And if you can't reach that level, it is not going to survive in the long term if it's a a big enough question. Your biography also mentions that you've worked in a variety of practice settings, including the National Health Service Corps. That was one that I was most interested in hearing about. And so what can you tell us about these experiences and how they have prepared you for your leadership roles in emergency medicine? Our two sons call us the Rolling Stones, my wife and I. We tend to move around a bit. That said, I'd say on behalf of our family that it's always been wonderful to be together as a family, as close as we are. I've always been involved in um, kind of rural aspects of care. Because I come from a family who's not wealthy, I had to find a way to fund medical school. So when I got Mm -hmm. out of college, uh, I found the National Health Service Corps. U.S. Public Health Service at that mm-hmm. time. Sort of that was the main option available for me to support the expense of medical school. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't nearly as expensive as the major, major deficits we're seeing now in people's financing when it comes to you know, mm-hmm. affording. But as a result of that, I had a three-year obligation to pay the federal government back with my time. So we spent three years in a little county known as Lee County, Virginia, 
Mm -hmm. Imagine the boot of the state of Virginia. It's the last one going west. Gotcha. Right next to, you know, um, Kentucky. And very rural and very Mm -hmm. isolated. But it was a terrific learning experience to come out of an internship and try to apply what little skills and knowledge I had at that time Mm -hmm. to the challenges of running a real ER. One room, Mm -hmm. two stretchers, big green oxygen tank, a case cylinder in between, and a defibrillator. That was our ER. The door to which we closed at night, or I think it was after dark, might have been midnight, I'm not Uh sure, but there was a bell outside, so if you were conscious and you could ring it, then you could come in, but uh, you know, most of the time that there was was a very low volume, but I learned some things there, and I learned about uh, emergency care and what difference it could make to Mm -hmm. members of the public. It allowed me to engage in in providing that kind of care, and I was thrilled by it, and that was probably one of my first research interests was EMS, and Mm -hmm. there was not a training course in EMS in the whole county of Lee. Mm. Uh, there were a few rescue squads around and so I kind of gathered them up and got a textbook from our local EMS regional office and mm-hmm. we had a training course. At that time we were teaching I think EOAs for airway management. Yuck. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, fortunately we found out later that that was not a good thing to do. But, and then the rapid defibrillation in the community. Next door a good emergency physician and I talked about having a defibrillation program out in the community. It really makes a huge difference mm-hmm. for survival. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned the World Trade Center attacks, and that connects there because that meeting was public access defibrillation, which was the oh. major trial published uh, about our work in 2004, where community units who had a CPR plan plus an AED had a two-fold increase in survivorship. So there's a connections there from my past that started mm-hmm. with Filling in around, what do we do with rescue squads to help them understand what they should be doing? Mm-hmm. How do we organize the materials? And so that was part of my past. Excellent. And part of my future. Are there any specific trends or advancements in emergency medicine that you're particularly excited about right now? I'll tell you about the opposite pole of things I'm not excited about. Okay. I think ED crowding and boarding mm-hmm. is ruining our practice of mm-hmm. emergency care. I think if we do not take further action on this, it will continue to make it difficult to attract highly qualified students and trainees into our discipline. Mm-hmm. I think it's getting worse almost on a daily basis. Certainly the trajectory is getting worse for crowding. I don't think members of the public want to experience that. If they need emergency care and they mm-hmm. have to sit for a long period of time, that, mm-hmm. that's not good. <laughs> I'm a member of the public too. I don't want that. Absolutely. We have to figure out a way to either through regulation or through persuasiveness, maybe Mm -hmm. public sector advocacy groups that may help us to carry that message appropriately because we failed to make sure that that major issue gets resolved. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to start on that side. I am so excited to see such high quality of individuals coming into our field. Mm -hmm. They're going to make a long-term and huge difference in our future. We have to keep them satisfied with that issue. I I'm very excited to see some more transdisciplinary interaction. That is the research clinical trialists who are participating in a number of different trial groups, SIREN, NET, PAD I mentioned, which is uh, is all but pedal network and others that are coming on to allow us to be better prepared and answer the important questions that we have for members of the public that we treat in the emergency department and subsequently into the ICU for the acute care issues. I think that transdisciplinary action is likely to be really important in our our futures. Mm -hmm. As we wrap up, any other advice for the residents and medical students that are listening? Find your passion. Find what makes 
a difference in your life to get you out of bed every day and want to go and accomplish something that's important, stay on that. Mm -hmm. Find a mentor who will help you through the tough times. It won't always be easy. Mm -hmm. If you're tackling something that's difficult, there will be periods that are hard, frustrating, mm -hmm. but don't give up. Mm -hmm. It's likely what you're doing is very important. Find a way to continue to do that. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Turndrup. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.